welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Thursday Deep Dive episode. We're here with Ian Gray, as always. Ian, you were on vacation last week on the beach. Uh, you said you were watching the market volatility uh, <laughs> from your uh, phone on the beach. I thought it was a funny story. How are you doing? Um, ready to talk? Yeah, doing you? well. It, it, was, uh, it was a good week. I think on Monday, if I'm remembering right, I more than paid for the vacation. And I was like, wow, that's kind of nice. And then the rest of the week I watched as I lost about, you know, 20 times what the vacation costs. So, um, <laughs> you know, fun week, but got into, got to buy some uh, deals on the dip and while sitting on the beach. So that's kind of a, you know, at least for at this point in my life, that's more of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So um, don't, doesn't, doesn't happen that often where I'm buying stocks on the beach, but it was pretty fun last week. Yeah, there we go. And uh, today we're gonna be talking Revolve Group. Um, Ryan will introduce the company, but we have to talk about seven investing mm-hmm. first with our That's code right. CCM. I think it's my turn, right? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, the company's a year old and they do seven picks a month. And so far over the last year, their picks have beat the market by upwards of, well, it depends on when you look at 20% maybe, uh, versus the S and P 500. So really strong performance from the team there. Um, and if you use our promo code CCM at checkout, you can get $10 off your first month. We talk about it every show, Great sales, uh, but bitch. it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a great deal. Seven bucks for one month. Try I think our service. sales are going well too. I haven't checked a little email thing. We, you know, whenever someone signs up, we get an email and every morning there's like two or three. Perfect. So everyone's, so. everyone's doing the right thing. Don't They're, stop, uh, you know, keep, yeah, it going. keep going. Yeah. Everyone is doing the right thing, signing up for seven invest because that is a smart thing to do for us. I mean, for your, for, 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 uh, for the listeners. Yes. It's smart for you. Uh, yeah. But Ryan, you Revolve want to group. Revolve Group. Yeah, so they're a digital, digital fashion retailer for Gen Z and millennials. So here's a quote from their 10K. They said, our dynamic platform connects a deeply engaged community of millions of consumers, thousands of global fashion influencers, and more than a thousand emerging established and owned brands. So most of the clothes that they offer are youthful, I guess is a nice way to put it, they're kind of more revealing, more going out type of clothes and they're targeted towards females uh, and they aren't cheap. So it's like, I guess you could call them, I know forward. So there's pretty much two retail segments. There's the revolve and then there's forward. Forward is like, I believe that's their own luxury brand. Am I getting that right? Uh, Yeah, they, well, it's theirs now, but they acquired it, I believe a few years back. And uh but yeah, this stuff isn't cheap. It's like a thousand dollar dresses on the high end. And uh, I think 77%, I believe was the number of purchases in 2020 came at full price. So it's definitely not a discount retailer. Yeah. Um, marketing is also a major part of their business. So they were really one of the pioneers of influencer marketing. So they have, they have basically a network of thousands of what they call influencers, but I mean, some of them are like bloggers and fashion bloggers, that kind of stuff. But then a lot of them are more Instagram models, sort of very um, attractive is yeah. Yeah. They're very attractive sort of models that kind of 
they market the products by just taking pictures, whether it's on a beach or at a concert or something like that. And a lot of their influencers are paid with in-store credit. I think there might also be like paper post type of things, but uh, a lot of it is paid for with in-store credit, which is pretty cheap compared to if you had to pay them with real dollars because it also boosts your top line. Um, But anyway, there's a quote here from the LA Times uh, there was an LA Times article that was kind of fascinating on the company. It said the company hosts more than 100 social events annually. One of its biggest and most exclusive, that is celeb-laden Latin parties, happens every year at the same time as Coachella Music Festival. It also sends influencers on trips to en- enviable vacation spots around the world, all designed to maximize Instagram-worthy moments in clothing sold by Revolve. So, you might, yeah, that might make your eyes roll to the back of your head, but... It- FOMO's yeah, FOMO works. Um, it works, uh, and to those festivals, they spend a lot of money, so it's important for the business and their marketing strategy. Yeah, Ian, you got some. Yeah, I was just gonna say, and this is one of those cases where it seems like it actually is working. Like, there's a lot of brands that want to have that FOMO factor. They want to have people dying to be at their parties, all that type of stuff. And and we can d- debate about whether these are the most effective uses of cash, but they have developed a little bit of that it factor where people do want to go to these things. Um, so yeah. at least, in, at least to that extent, they've been successful. Yeah. And in my, I guess, vetting process of management, uh, when it, maybe not a vetting process, but when you hear that like social events are a big component of it, your worry is that maybe this is a business where the CEO is self-serving and could just potentially be, and there's two CEOs, it's co-CEOs, but you're yeah. worried that the parties are kind of designed to boost their ego. It seems like the CEOs are more focused on fashion and they really like the industry. Uh, yeah. But well, they've been doing it since 2003. So right. they have a long-term mindset and uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of worry about, you know, like fire in- fest kind of stuff like that, yeah. you know, hit and miss, but the longevity I think shows that they're not just in it for the party. Yeah. So they were founded in 2003 by, they're now co-CEOs, Michael Mente and Mike Caranicolas. I might be getting that wrong, but uh, they both met at a dot-com company that went belly up during the dot-com bubble. And they ended up starting Revolve coming out of that. But it was originally just a place to buy premium jeans online. Apparently in like 2001, 2002, premium wow. jeans were like a big thing, like really fancy jeans. And they were based in LA. So maybe fashion trends don't uh, transcend across the country, but uh they didn't actually start working with influencers in 2000, until 2009. So if that gives you a better idea of that, this wasn't like their main game plan. Um, yeah, they, they had six years of business where that wasn't included. And they launched Forward, which was that luxury brand, or Forward was launched in 2008. Uh, but you said it was acquired. Is yeah, I should confirm that. Uh, we probably should look at that before the show, but we'll, hit it. we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get it at the break and we'll talk yeah, to we'll, we'll, we'll mention it on the second half. Yeah. But Revolve didn't IPO until 2019, so relatively new. I think it's been in the public markets for about two years now, so not too bad. You want to talk uh, competition industry? Yeah. yeah. So from the 10K, uh, they gave out some numbers, so they might be a little biased here, but I don't think they can really fudge these numbers. Um, they're really targeting people that are born after 1981. Um, sorry, if you're older than that, they might be ageist towards you, but that's just unfortunate. Uh, they represent about 22% of consumer spending in 2019. This is people born after 1981. And that should probably grow to the majority of spend by 2030 or close to it. 
uh, because we're seeing, I mean, it's just each year, the millennial and Gen Z demographic gets older. And as they get older, they have theoretically more dollars to spend. Ian, do you have something to add there? Yeah, I just had a question for you, actually. Do you think that that's, is it reasonable to expect that they will continue to um, get be targeting people born after 1981? Or 10 years from now, are they going to be targeting people that are born after 1991? Do you know, is this like generation bounded or is it age bounded? Do you know? Yeah, it'd be I tough to tell. I would guess that it's based on sort of the lifestyle of the people, which it tends to be more to 20, like 30 year olds, that yeah. kind of thing. People that are going out, this is really kind of going out clothing, whether it's concerts, going to the bar, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you could argue that as well. I would say I don't see a lot of 50 year olds in 20 years or whatever, rocking uh, sleeveless mm -hmm. t-shirts and stuff. Who knows? But maybe I'm wrong. The uh, Yeah, because either they're going to have to graduate to the younger generations or they're going to have to go with um, their current cohorts as they age. Uh, you'd hope they can either do one or the other. Uh, but if they can't do both, the business will be in trouble. Uh, but if they can if they can do both, you know, that, that would be great. But I'll go back to some of the industry numbers. Um, they face competition from basically everyone. Uh, you know, there's e-commerce sites, even Amazon, Walmart, whatever, Target. Uh, there's sites of all sizes. There's smaller ones powered by Shopify. There's boutique shops, department stores, basically anyone that sells clothes. And in the fashion industry, they're competing with Revolve Group. Uh, so there's a ton of competitors out there. Uh, but with that, you probably shouldn't be concerned about market saturation or like finding product market fit of what a lot of tech companies or software or apps are looking for because this business model is so simple that they can really... I mean, they're selling clothes to people, very scalable. Everyone wears clothes, uh, but it's really how they position themselves versus the competitors, how that brand is looked at. Um, and you can probably see that they have a tailwind from e-commerce. They're definitely an advantage at e-commerce uh, versus someone like Macy's who has all the physical locations. And yeah, millennial and Gen Z buyers should continue to buy online. Uh, just as a note, uh, for what they plan, I think this is very important. The Revolve brand had 4.4 million followers on Instagram. Again, that's something that makes as an investor, you're like, all right, whatever. Uh, at the end of, they had 4.4 million followers at the end of 2020. Uh, and that's up 44% year over year. I think that's pretty good indication yeah. that uh, people like whether that's the top of the funnel or whatever, I think that's a, that's a good sign. That's yeah, a good rough number. It, it's easier marketing for sure. Uh, and their enterprise value to Instagram followers looks pretty cheap at this multiple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's my, yeah, the answer. But uh, no, nice. like if you're trying to think of 4.4 million as a lot for reference, Lululemon I think has 3 million followers. So uh, it, it is sort of more prominent on social media than Lululemon, which is obviously a huge brand. Uh, Ian, you wanna hit management and ownership? Yep, so as we alluded to earlier, uh, this company has co-CEOs, which is typically a bit concerning to me. Um, doesn't generally make a whole lot of sense. I don't think, especially in a business like this, that has r really one product. Sometimes you see co-CEOs in a situation where one's running the investment portfolio and one's running the operating business or something like that. But especially in a situation like this, where there's really one business, that's a bit concerning to me, but they, they seem to be doing it well. Um, both the CEOs are co-founders, as we've mentioned, and they've been working together since 2003 um, in this company. And they were working at the same company before this. So they seem to probably do this fairly well, know the responsibilities, break out the um, 
kind of the management between them and, and it seems to work. So the two guys are uh, Mike Karanikolas and Michael Minte. Um, half of the shares outstanding are controlled by a company called MMK Development Inc., which is an entity that's owned by the co-founders. So they basically, in effect, own a little over half of the company, um, which also translates to over 65% of voting rights. So they have they have control of the firm. Um, that's, that's something that sometimes can be concerning to us because investors can't go in, uh, replace management. They can't... Um, you know, demand things of management, things like that, because management has control. But it's also can be a positive if you trust management, because they're not going to be pulled by short term trends necessarily. They're going to be more focused on hopefully more focused on the long term. If you trust management, and I know that this is something that um, Marcus Limonis, the I guess the TV CEO and also the uh, CEO of Camping World, um, he he talks about this a lot because he has control of his firm is, Hey, I can take a whole a long-term view of things. I don't have to get pulled this way or that way by the market. I know what's best. I don't want people telling me what to do. Um, so they've got that at revolve. So it'll be interesting to see like it, that has to be something you become comfortable with. Um, the last thing I'll say is I like the way that they've handled the pandemic. They seem to really pare back on costs and do a good job of um, generating cash, even in a, even though revenues declined this year. Um, and then they're staying aggressive now. They've started ramping up inventory in the fourth quarter, which I'll get into later. And they, they don't seem to have really gotten tentative. They're pretty, they seem like they're good managers and they know this business well. Yeah, there's plenty of examples there. Of, uh, I loved what they did with the inventory this year where they ramped it down for the summer. I mean, it was pretty easy to see why they should do that, but now they're ramping it back up for hopefully the reopening. And yeah, definitely the founder thing can be a double-edged sword if they have that voting control. But if you like the management, I think it's a huge positive uh, because they don't have to worry about one, uh, you know, just getting a bunch of stock options that can dilute shareholders. Now they, they already have 65% or, you know, half of the shares they're going to do just fine without getting a bunch of stock comp. And they don't have to worry about short-term dynamics. I know they saw their stock price get cut down by like 70% post IPO. Um, and if you were a short-term manager, then that might concern you. They might've done some things to hurt them or to you know get something quick in the short run, but in the long run, they weren't ready. But it seems like they were able to invest enough to, I don't know, just yeah. hope, hope things could do well in the long I th- run. Yeah, I think that ownership is kind of a big deal because they don't, so many, uh, so many compensation packages are incentivized based on whatever one year EBITDA goals or something like that. And yeah. ha- having a huge ownership means you just don't have to care about what happens in that given year because you're not, that's not where your compensation is tied to. Yep. All right. I'll hit the valuation. Probably good on that. Uh, market cap right now is about 3.37 billion. Ticker is RVLV. Uh, Ian will hit the, the balance sheet. They have, I think, minimal liability, so the enterprise value is a little lower than that. Uh, but price to sales is about 5.8 right now, and price to gross profit of 11. PE trailing is about 59. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the margins were a little weak this year. Uh, you maybe think they can get margin expansion uh, in the future. And then price to free cash flow was about 48, so definitely a premium valuation. Uh, I think we've seen the stock up about 300% or more since the March lows. So they've done really well during the pandemic, even though their revenue 
has actually done worse. So I think people are looking towards the future as them as a, you know, quote, reopening play, although there could be other factors there. And then the last thing I'll say about the valuation, if you look at the shares outstanding from the end of 2018, 2019, and 2020, uh, they've gone from 68 million to 69 million to 71 million. So a little bit of a dilution. Uh, they had the IPO in there as well, and they had some different preferred stock that got converted to common. Uh, but seems like the share dilution shouldn't be a giant issue, you know. But you gotta expect it with a company. All yeah. companies are kind of you know gonna do it. Yeah, SBC is not huge. I think it was oh gosh, three million out of five hundred. Yeah, about, it was about three. Yeah, three million on like. 580 well yeah. it's 581 million in revenue yeah 580 in revenue yeah yeah their nose is aura or whatever doing 40% yeah <laughs> anyway so 581 million in revenue for 2020 and that was down 3% year over year as you might imagine just and if you're wondering what sort of driving that down less people going out, less need for this kind of clothes, uh, just in general drives no less volume. Right. And there's less in-person events. Uh, gross margin was 52.6%. Um, it has sort of ebbed and flowed, but it tends to be above 50% roughly. Um, they, like I said, they are not selling stuff cheaply. So it, it is, uh, definitely a premium price. And then 71 million in free cash flow. Free cash flow margin was at about 12.2%. Uh, they have 1.5 million average customers in 2020. That's roughly 1.5 million. And the average order value was $236. So that's kind of the average ticket. And it's actually um, down quite a bit. So you typically it's closer to 300 than 200. Interesting. Okay. I didn't see that, but the, uh, as I said earlier, 77% of the products in 2020 were bought at full price. Uh, only 12.2% of revenue is spent on sales and marketing. I thought that was a little interesting considering that marketing marketing is such a big part of their business. Um, but I think it might be a little misleading because some of the marketing expenses paid in store credit. So that kind of just balances out with the revenue. So you might as yeah. well look at it as sales and marketing as a percentage of gross profit instead. Yep. Um, yeah. And then, like I said, SBC was pretty small, not very big at all. There was a sizable inventory decline that helped boost free cash flow. I think they the inventory dropped about $10 million year over year, which without that, it would have been more like 60 million in free cash flow. That's why if you're looking at free cash flow margin, it was so much higher than operating margin. Um, typically operating margin is right around eight to 10% right now, normalized. Um, it could probably expand over time. Uh, I imagine there's some operating leverage in the business, but yeah, that was basically all the earnings. Ian, you want to hit balance sheet? Yep. So they've got about $146 million in cash on the balance sheet. That was a big bump from last year, almost an $80 million bump because of this free cash flow. Um, no debt. They did have a line of credit that they drew on and repaid in 2020. So they've got a, some liquidity if they need it, but they seem to be, they should be able to fund their business with cash at this point. Yeah. Um, the inventory is down a bit from last year, I think uh, 9% or something overall but they expect it to increase in the coming year. And they had a 29% sequential increase in Q4. So um, they're already starting to ramp up. They're trying to be aggressive, get in front. Of, they don't want to be caught without inventory once the reopening starts. They've made statements that we don't know exactly when people are going to start buying for the reopening, but we want we want to make sure we don't miss it. And so, and they've got the liquidity that they can handle uh, bumping up inventory a little bit. That's not a problem at all. The inventory turnover is about 2.6 times. So that means that's how many times they uh, 
sell through their entire inventory in a year, which is about the same as the prior year, just a slightly higher. Um, I'd love to see that, you know, if they could, if they could bump that up to, to three times or something like that, just increases margins and increases, um, free cash flow. So that'd be great. But, um, inven- uh, but the inventory turnover is, uh, it's been fairly steady over the last four years. So I wouldn't necessarily expect that they have, they have talked a little bit about trying to get smarter about inventory. Um, and I think we've seen some of that this year, as you alluded to Brett, that, you know, it's gone, went down when they didn't need it. Now it's kind of ramping back up when they do need it. And it's kind of, it's normalizing, but, um, anyways, it's, it's an interesting, that's, that's a big piece of this business is how well they handle inventory. Cause you don't want to get caught with like last year's stuff either, because then you have to discount it brings down your margins, all that type of stuff. So it's, it's a very, um, inventory is super important here. Um, the other thing I'll say is they increased accounts payable a lot, um, in the past year, slower to pay suppliers. I think instead of like paying suppliers in 30 days, they were paying suppliers in like 45 days roughly. So, um, I suspect that was due to the pandemic. They were trying to just, they got some better terms from their suppliers. Um, but that helped with, that helped with cash flow um, and things like that. So between accounts payable and the inventory changes, it was like 18 to $20 million that was added to the free cash flow line. And so um, as Ryan was alluding to, that would take it down to something more like $50 million in free cash flow if you didn't have these adjustments from accounts payable and, uh, uh, Inventory. Uh, inventory. So, yeah. So you, that's something to keep in mind is they may actually free cash flow next year could potentially be lower if they don't have the same benefits from those two um, areas. But uh, anyway, something to keep an eye on. Yeah. The, uh, and I think another thing to think about with the balance sheet is one, they have this influx of cash, right? And they took out that revolver uh, because I think they were looking in the spring and they're like, wow. All right. Everything's closed down. No festivals, no nothing. That's our whole marketing play. We think the business might totally collapse. It ended up doing fine. They kind of pivoted and really did strongly with the, the online stuff through their digital channels. But that helped them save a ton of money on marketing because they weren't they were forced to not spend whatever three million dollars at a festival. Yeah. I don't know. To help them cost save, but they're gonna want to spend that um, coming to the next year. Ian, do you have anything before the break? Yeah, just one last thing. I think that's a great example of one of these companies that was very conservative and very um really cut expenses during the pandemic. And it, I think the pandemic taught a lot of companies, and I think Revolve is a great example of this, that they can actually be a little leaner than they are. Yeah. And so when comp- they were forced to lean down and then coming out of it, they're realizing, you know what, there's not really a reason to bring back on some of this fat. And so I think moving forward, Revolve is a great example, but I think there's other companies that we've looked at as well where this is true, that these companies recognize, oh, we actually have a little better margin profiles than we thought we did. Um, and sometimes those cuts are hard to make and it takes something like a pandemic where you're worried about your business surviving, um, to really force you to make some of those hard cuts. But, uh, I I think this was a good example of them slimming down and realizing that that's sustainable. Right. Ryan, do you have anything else before we hit the break? No. Okay. We're going to hit the break. Uh, we finished up, you know, the summary of Revolve Group here. Now we're going to hit the, uh, you know, more of the analysis, competitive advantages, future growth opportunities, all that good stuff. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) 
All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. Uh, we tried to clear it up when we took the ad break and paused for a second, but we we're unsure if Ford was acquired. Uh, it was pre-IPO, so they didn't have to do a press release. All you got to know is that Ford is owned by Revolve Group now, and it makes up about 10 to 50% of their revenue, and it's a little different. Um, it's less mainstream. It's more of the luxury $1,000 items, you know, dresses, stuff that is really only for the ultra wealthy. Uh, it, but once we clear that up, Ryan, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's really designer clothes. They're two different yeah. websites, but the partnership does kind of track back all the way to 2012. 2012, yeah. Uh, That's what then, we found on the old Google machine. Yeah, there was like a whole, <laughs> there's like a whole nother new press release that came out in 2019 with the Revolve launching in-house brands that made yeah. it a little muckier. So, why don't we get to the competitive advantages? Ian, you want to go first? Yep. So the first competitive advantage we're going to look at is brand. Um, one of the things that Revolve has going for it is that it's a very recognizable brand by people who uh, search for apparel. So even today, I was um, I knew I was going to be doing this podcast and I was sending out some messages to some people um, in one of my classes and asked, hey, has anybody you know heard of Revolve or you know, and within like two minutes, someone said, oh yeah, I love Revolve. Revolve is the best. I buy all my stuff on Revolve. So it's recognizable. It throws all these parties and it's got another proof of this is the, it's got four and a half million followers on Instagram, which like we've talked about is quite a few. Um, it's more than Lululemon. Uh, I think one key metric to watch here to see if their brand continues to improve is active customer retention. So they do track how many active customers they have, and that declined by about 1% this year. And they have mentioned that they think that that might um, continue to have small declines like that. But t- keep an eye on active customer retention to see if they're really building this brand that they say they are. Yeah, that's a good indicator of whether they can post pandemic get back to that growth. Uh, and I would note that their active customer number is a trailing 12 month number. So you might not see strong growth, even right. if like for one quarter, they do well, you need a full year of uh, good customer growth to really get that number back up. But um, it, it might be a little misleading on the earnings report, but that is a good number to watch out if that marketing funnel is working for them. Yeah. And there is like, maybe it sounds less important to some listeners, like who cares about their social media presence, but like if they launch like an absolute hit product, they have access to four and a half million customers. Plus the other contractors. Yeah. Instantly. Um, and, and so the, it's just an easy funnel and that really is a competitive advantage, but I'll get into mine, which is that influencer network. I think, uh, social media has really uh, normalized or even weaponized uh, envy and FOMO for re- retailers. Um, Especially and, Instagram, yeah. Right. So you've got, I mean, girls want to look like other girls that they admire, whether it's uh, at Coachella or it's on beaches in the Bahamas. It creates a bit of a network effect uh, or even a virality, I guess, uh, just because, you know, people, they, they kind of admire their influencers, if you will. And so that uh, having that network, having them loyal to uh, Revolve is really helpful. And then also on that influencer side, like girls want to be, or some of the models or the influencers, they want to be Revolve influencers because it's kind of, you know, that's, I guess, yeah. clout, if you will. And so <laughs> that they're willing to do it for maybe less than they do it for other brands. They'll take in-store credit instead of just typical pay per post kind of thing. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, that's, that's a testament, I guess, to Revolve's brand. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the influencer market can kind of seem muddled and seems crowded, right? But Revolve has the scale where it can reach hundreds or even, I don't know if they mentioned they have a thousand partners, but they can have hundreds of partners where thousands, thousands. Um, And I think they count people that have a few as a few thousand followers upwards of, you know, multiples of millions. Uh, The, you know, if you're just a brand that's very small and you just do one person and that feels like it's not really going to get through, but if you're with a ton of people that can be like, Oh, Oh, everyone, I mean, it's, it's right. the mark. Everyone knows that marketing tool, it's kind of like what every department store has been doing for decades with, you know, TV advertising and stuff like that. Definitely. You need a repetitive effect and the scale can help there, but I'll hit my competitive advantage. It's very similar. These aren't all like, you wouldn't define these at all as like a moat or anything like that, but it's more of with these retailers, you kind of just got to work with what you got because everyone's running very similar business models. So I think the scale at these festivals give them an advantage. Again, if you're someone that doesn't go to these and I, I don't go to these, it's it's mainly for the, you know, the people that like to go to these uh, concerts and stuff like that. It's, it's a unique crowd, but really like it is important. And it's like, it's huge to these people. Um, it gives them advantage revolve for because they have the ability to spend a million dollars or more at one of these concert weekends and it's inconsequential like other brands it might hurt them to have to spend a million dollars boutique brand will not be able to do that is it worth it on a marketing spend if you look at the customer acquisition cost maybe but it does get that marketing engine going because you have to go there you have to pay whatever your your um models or whatever to you know wear your stuff Influencers, influencers, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call them, but (laughs) it gets that marketing engine kind of going. Um, and that's where it has to start. Um, but it it was nice to see, I think that they were still able to, I mean, revenue declines of only, what was it? 3% when their entire marketing funnel was kind of killed outside of the social media. I think it was down. Yeah. 3%, 3% for the full year when a lot, I mean, that summer was totally crushed. Uh, but who knows, maybe that means that that marketing spend isn't really that warranted. Uh, but let's get to the next segment, future growth opportunities. Ian, what do you have? Well, first I just want to say, I, it's a shock to me that you're not a big festival guy, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> I am not, uh, not a rave guy for sure. <laughs> okay. More, more of that Seattle grunge maybe. Yeah. That's, that's more of my alley. <laughs> okay. Well, my f- future growth opportunity that I'm really looking at is Forward, their luxury brand that we've talked about. Um, average tickets for their luxury brand are more than twice as high as their Revolve brand. So um, they, they, you know, it's, which makes sense, right? They're selling more expensive stuff on uh, Revolve. Their gross margins are actually a little bit lower. Um, last year, despite the fact that Revolve as a whole brand, as a whole company, um, revenue declined 3%. The forward uh, segment actually grew by 8% last year, despite the pandemic. And so I think that's showing that there's a lot of opportunity there and that there's some strength behind that brand. Um, They believe that they're great brand builders and they say that they haven't, in the most recent call, they've said that they haven't focused on forward so far, but they're really going to start devoting more resources to forward. Uh, One kind of good comp is Farfetch, which is growing aggressively about 46% a year, which is a, it's another, it's more of a pure play uh, luxury um, apparel brand. So they're growing about 46% a year and um, there should be some, there should be some growth prospects there, I guess. If if they're growing 46% a year, Revolve should figure out a way to continue to grow forward. 
Yeah, and it, uh, luxury spending as a whole tends to be more resilient across during recessions and stuff like that, even during downturns. So yeah, the bull case here is just income inequality continues, right? Yeah, no, I guess no. that's uh, that's a bad joke, but well, but I mean that would I guess benefit uh, luxury brands. It and, would potentially. Yeah. But anyway, my uh, future growth opportunity. It, if it seems like this stuff is dry, it's a very simple business, right? They just skate where the fashion trends are going. So it's not, uh, there isn't like one thing they can do that will totally change the company. So I just took Tailwinds, which is social commerce. Revolve would definitely be a beneficiary of uh, if like direct buying on Instagram became sort of normalized or was really yeah. successful. And they were one of the beta companies on that. So. Really? Kind of, yeah, hopefully they can be one of the first people to do that. Or if TikTok got into e-commerce, I don't know if they already do. I'm uh, in. I, I don't, I'm not on TikTok, so. Uh, but yeah, it's just a very social-driven brand, and their ability to be accessible everywhere is gonna benefit as e-commerce continues to grow. I, I still think e-commerce is certainly certainly in its early innings. Um, but yeah, there, like I said earlier, there isn't one obvious future growth opportunity. It's retail, it's fragmented, but they've done a really good job. Yeah. And like you can say, oh, they have nothing that's differentiated, but you could have said that about Macy's, JC, Penny, Nordstrom. They're all the same brands. Maybe, back not, in the day. maybe not the examples we want to use. Oh, but no, yeah. not, not today, but I'm saying 50 <laughs> right. years ago, those were phenomenal businesses and potentially... I don't want to get too bullish, but potentially revolves repeating that with their online brand, but I'll get into my future growth opportunity. This is the simple one and it's straightforward and this is a little short term, but the reopening of the US economy, um, the combination of like a fully vaccinated population coming at Memorial Day weekend, which is the end of May for anyone that's international, uh, with a year of, you know, people not doing social activities. I think that's a giant boom for Revolve Group's products. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's a better reopening stock. Maybe you could argue a few other things, but the tailwinds in the short term seem phenomenal. The Again, the stock is probably pricing in that. It's at a premium valuation relative to its trailing earnings. It's probably pricing in a lot of margin expansion and growth. Um, and they've seen some really strong examples internationally too. Australia and Israel have both done really well dealing with COVID-19. And they said that I believe it was either over the last two months or in the fourth quarter itself that sales in Australia grew 30% and Israel grew 50%. I think that's a very strong example of what could happen in the United States, yeah. their core market um, over the next maybe year and a half or so. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, we are of the camp that if vaccinations are out by Memorial Day, we're going to have, yeah, we're going to have a summer full of pent up demand. Um, yeah. And there's no doubt that Revolve would benefit from that. Yeah. But, uh, Ian, you have anything yeah. else on future growth opportunities before we hit? Nope. Okay. Do you want to hit your highlights on the lights then? Yeah. So kind of speaking to what you were just saying, one of my highlights is strong international growth. Um, they said they had 24% international growth in Q4. So if we can kind of extrapolate that forward, like you're saying to the U S once things open up a little bit more as people, you know, the weather gets a little nicer, all those types of things. Um, that's pretty encouraging. They also had revenue growth of over 20% year over year in the first two months prior to COVID um, in 2020. And so they were showing strong revenue growth and then COVID hit. So I, it, this is one of those companies I think you can really look at and say, COVID had a real effect. It was, it's just, it's not just the thing that they're saying that management's saying to cover their backside. They're actually, it had a real effect on their business. Um, strong free cash flow generation. 
uh, just pretty solid business in my opinion. Um, low lights, some mixed reviews, actually. Uh, some people love them. Like, like I mentioned my classmate earlier, she was talking about how much she loved them for buying all sorts of things, but some people don't. Um, if you go look on like, uh, I think it was like Facebook reviews or something, it's got like 2.3 out of five stars. Yeah. And yeah. And most of that is like, Oh, they didn't respond to me about this you know, thing, or my thing came with a stain on it or stuff like that. And you never know how stuff like that is resolved. Um, but it seems to have a little bit of mixed reviews. So I'd want to dig in a little further on that. And then I'd say also the decline in active customers by 1%, not entirely surprising given the pandemic, but, um, a little disappointed. It would be nice to see active customers uh, staying steady or growing a little bit, but not a huge red flag. Yeah. It'd be important for active customers to get back for sure. That's a, that's a key number to watch. Ryan, do you have anything on highlights and lowlights? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think the reopening play here is real. I think they will. I mean, you've witnessed it sort of internationally. But the other thing that's important is that I feel like a lot of their business in the U.S. is done sort of on the West Coast. And they have a lot of California-based events, a lot of concerts like that. Um, and I hate to be political, but I think California will be probably slower to open than maybe the rest of the country. And so... Uh, not only do we need to see some opening across the country, but it, it really needs, everyone needs to be open, I guess, um, to, yeah. to have kind of a blowout 2021. And uh, honestly, there is some pricing in going in right now uh, in terms of the enterprise value that there is going to be a solid 2021. So if that doesn't happen, I guess that's my low light. You could flip it. We are hoping that it happens and the price reflects that. So, that's a little dangerous, but I guess the only other potential low light is that I don't know if there's a moat. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there needs to be one, but or if there's it's just any a way. Yeah, it's, it's fragmented. Like, yeah, there's not really any way they can do that. And what's? Uh, I just keep thinking, what's to stop? Like, what's the barrier to entry for the next revolve? Like how scale on marketing? Is that? Scale on marketing because they're spending ten percent a year on marketing. 10% of revenue on marketing. That's really it. Social channels is something. They have a little bit of a competitive advantage versus department stores who have that, uh, you know, property leases. That's really crushing them. Yeah. Besides that, I, I don't know. Not, nothing. I don't know if there needs to be a moat. I don't know if there'll ever be a business with a massive moat in, uh, in retail this, like yeah, this. But retail. I, yeah, it's just hard to kind of pin anything down there. What about you? Um, I'd agree. Big tailwind from reopening. Margins look good to me. Um, I think looking at gross margins, if they can stay in between 50 and 60%, and you could probably reasonably say, you know, a 10% marketing expense, maybe 10% GNA, maybe lower. And then you got about 10% for fulfillment and uh, stuff like that. You could think that they could get to 20% operating margins, maybe 25% if you're optimistic and they have some pricing power and gross margins can expand. Uh, so I think the margins could be a lot better uh, in normalized environments and when they're not growing as quickly. Uh, I think they do have a bit of a competitive advantage with paying influencers, getting the prime real estate at these festivals. Um, and there's no real, you're not worried about expansion in customers. There's only a million customers or a million five. That, I mean, there's not any worry about reaching any sort of saturation, I, I, I think. Um, and I would compare them strongly to an online Macy's, something like that. I worry again, because 
the department stores were able to last so long because the real, the physical real estate mattered so much. Can Instagram replicate that if they get someone upwards of, you know, 20 million Instagram followers? I doubt it, uh, which that will concern me a bit. It's just less costly to be a massive retailer in the digital world than it is. I mean, marketing is sort of your CAC. Uh, Marketing is, I guess, the old operating leases. Yeah. So, you, yeah, it just seems like it's easier for competitors to come in. E-commerce is always hard to compete with. It's muddled more on Instagram and stuff like that. There's just way more, uh, just more, I don't know, marketing thrown at you. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's, I don't know. But overall, business seems pretty strong. Um, I don't think anything to complain about. Balance sheet are great. Uh, but let's kick things, or sorry, finish things up. More or less interested, Ian, what do you think? I'd say I'm more interested for sure. I uh, I hadn't looked at this business before, but I like it. Pretty simple business model, <laughs> sell clothing, easy to understand. And, um, you know, I think they've got some good tailwinds here, especially if they could ever capture that that Instagram audience and really selling direct through Instagram at scale. That would be, as I think Ryan was mentioning it, that would be a huge boon to this business if they could just capture people as soon as they see their favorite influencer wearing something and just buy it immediately. That that makes a lot of sense to me. So definitely a business I'm going to be keeping my eye on. All right, Ryan. I am more interested. Um, it, I don't think the price is alarmingly high or anything like that. Uh, I do like management, um, which is sort of a big worry for me for a business like this. Uh, because there's so much social stuff going on. I just didn't want, you know, I, you want to vet they're not self-serving in that regard. Yeah, you don't want Billy McFarland. Right. Uh, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I'm more interested. I'm going to have to keep digging to see sort of, I hope to find maybe a better competitive advantage. I really struggled to find one today. I think we all did because it's such a fragmented space. So um, yeah. if I can identify something that's really sustainable, that would probably help. Yeah, that is the big worry. I'd say I'm more interested as well. Again, premium valuation. Uh, but the big concern with that is like, all right, we're us three. We're not afraid. We've invested in the past in stuff that would be considered overvalued or premium valuation. But when you invest, you got to think, all right, can this grow for years to come? How confident am I in that? And a big part of that is the defensibility of the business, which comes from any competitive advantages and not uh, that's got to be the big concern here, but I'm definitely more interested. I, I just, it's such a simple business model. And it seems like we've probably talked in circles a bit on this show. Right. Uh, it could have been maybe half as long, but it, it works. It really works. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I would pay less attention to the last 12 month numbers yeah. and maybe extrapolate back five years to see what a normalized environment would look like. Yeah. All right. I think it's a good way to wrap things up. But Ryan, we have your choice for next week's show. What did uh, what did we agree on? I'm forgetting. I thought, uh, I, I think I told you guys before. Uh, yeah, Farfetch? Farfetch? Was it Farfetch? Was it Farfetch? No, it wasn't Farfetch. It was... Uh... Uh, oh, Five Below. Five no, below. it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No. It wasn't Five Below? <laughs> no, it was well, something that was a little more growthy. Uh, it'll be a surprise. More growthy? Oh, oh. Oh. Well, it's going to have to be surprising. Sorry for everyone that's waiting. And, and trying to have to wait till the oh, gosh. All right. Well, it'll be a surprise. Hopefully just know it was growthier. We can't remember it. We can't remember. All right. All right. That's great anticipation. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. 
Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold positions in any securities discussed on this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next episode.